acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to This Day in History class, a show for those interested in the ups and downs of everyday history. I'm Gabe Lusier, and in this episode, we're talking about the evolution of elevators, including the day the invention finally went mainstream, and why all of them seem to be named Otis. The day was March 23rd, 1857. The first commercial elevator began operation inside a New York City department store. Known as the E.V. Howitt Building, the five-story china and porcelain store still stands at the corner of Broadway and Broom Street in what's now the city's Soho District. The building was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1873 as the elevator it housed marked the beginning of an architectural revolution, one that would forever change the shape and height of American cities. Elevators have become a somewhat mundane fixture of modern living, but riding one used to be a much more thrilling and dangerous prospect. Elevators as we know them started to take shape in the 1850s, but they were around in some form long before that. For instance, if you take just the basic concept of an elevator, a machine that can lift things vertically, then the invention is actually thousands of years old. It's speculated that ancient Egyptians may have used vertical lifts to build their pyramids, but the first recorded use of a vertical lift comes from the 3rd century BC, when the Greek mathematician Archimedes built a platform that could be hoisted up and down using ropes and pulleys. Those early lifts obviously didn't run on electricity, but were instead powered by people, animals, or in some cases even by water. They didn't move people either they were mainly used to lift building materials or water jugs. And it wasn't until a few centuries later that primitive elevators were first used to transport living creatures. That was in the first century AD, 
when Roman gladiators and wild animals rode the lifts from the lower levels up to the floor of the Colosseum. Even in those days, most people wouldn't have trusted their lives to an elevator. The devices were considered safe enough for enslaved combatants and wild beasts, but the average citizen would have still opted for the stairs. There was just too much room for error when you had people or donkeys pulling the ropes. People didn't start using elevators by choice until more reliable systems were developed. For example, in 1743, King Louis XV had one of the earliest passenger elevators installed in the Palace of Versailles. Being a ladies' man, his private elevator was an easy way for the king's mistresses to visit him in secret. He called it his flying chair, and all you had to do to operate it was tug on a cord connected to a pulley system. From there, gravity and a series of counterweights would do the rest. By the early 1800s, steam-powered lifts were in development, allowing much heavier loads of building materials such as coal, lumber, and steel to be raised hundreds of feet in a matter of seconds. That new capacity led to major booms in construction and mining, and was a big part of what made the Industrial Revolution so transformative. That said, steam-powered elevators still had one major flaw. They were incredibly dangerous. If a rope snapped, the lift would plummet, and unfortunately, that happened fairly often, all the way through the first half of the 19th century. The danger finally began to subside in the mid-1800s, when an entrepreneur and inventor named Elijah Graves Otis arrived on the scene. He got into the elevator game in 1852, while working on a project for a company that manufactured bed frames. His client needed a way to move heavy equipment to the second floor of the factory. The only problem was the equipment was so heavy, the lifting cables couldn't bear the weight for very long, and if the cables happened to snap, there would be nothing to stop the elevator from plunging straight to the ground. Otis's solution was to develop the world's first safety device for elevators. It was basically a braking system that functioned as a failsafe for the lift. If the cables should give way, the loss of tension would trigger the release of levers on either side of the elevator car. Those levers would then lock into a series of grooves along the vertical guide rails, arresting the car's fall and locking it in place. To be clear, all of the elevators of the era were braced on either side by vertical guide rails that helped keep the car steady as it was raised or lowered. But until Otis came along, the rails had been completely smooth, so if a cable broke, the car would just slide straight down in freefall. Otis's breakthrough was to carve deep-set grooves into the rails and create a kind of saw-toothed ratchet system to act as brakes. Confident in his new invention, Otis established the Otis Elevator Company in 1853. Industrial manufacturers recognized the merits of the new braking system right away, but they were still slow to adapt. In fact, Otis only sold three elevators his first year in business for about $300 each, and none of them were used to carry passengers. Despite the advent of the safety brake, the public remained wary of elevators. Most people still viewed the machines as death traps and were unlikely to be swayed by confusing diagrams and technical explanations about ratchets and levers. In order to truly trust in such a system, people would need to see it in action for themselves. And at the New York World's Fair in 1854, Elijah Otis allowed them to do just that. 
Of course, fairgoers weren't actually willing to ride an elevator and test the brake system themselves, but Otis anticipated that. So instead, he arranged a stunt that would put only one person's life on the line. His own. Here's how it went. At the Crystal Palace Exposition Hall, Otis constructed a 50-foot wooden elevator. Then, with some help from none other than P.T. Barnum, Otis gathered a crowd and promised them a death-defying stunt unlike anything they'd ever seen. With the crowd sufficiently hyped, Otis then dramatically rode the elevator to the very top, where he then ordered an axe-wielding assistant to cut the rope that held up the elevator. The onlookers were stunned and braced themselves for a tragic scene, but thankfully, it never came. Instead, to their surprise and great relief, the platform dropped just a few inches before it suddenly stopped. The crowd was blown away, but they were also skeptical of how reliable the brake system really was. Maybe Otis had just gotten lucky and the brakes wouldn't work a second time. So, to silence the naysayers once and for all, Otis performed the stunt again, and again, and again, every hour of the day that the fair was open. And in that way, little by little, one crowd at a time, Elijah Otis won over the public and convinced them that elevators were, at long last, safe to ride. Those demonstrations, as dangerous as they were, really were the turning point for Otis. He sold seven elevators in 1854 and 15 the next year. Sales continued to grow from there, but all the elevators sold were still used for hauling freight and employees in factories and mines. Then, on March 23, 1857, the Otis Company made history by installing the first commercial elevator open to the public. The Howitt Building elevator moved at a speed of 0.67 feet per second and was powered by a steam engine located in the basement. The building's owner knew that something as novel as an elevator would draw people in, people who would then hopefully stick around to buy his goods. The gambit seems to have paid off, as the store's foot traffic and profits both increased after the installation. Following that initial success, the floodgates opened, and within 16 years, more than 2,000 passenger elevators were in operation all across the country. That wide adoption rate in the 1870s launched the invention into its second phase, leading to all kinds of architectural and cultural changes. For example, before elevators were popularized, there was no such thing as a skyscraper. Buildings tended to max out at five or six stories, as climbing more flights of stairs than that would have been impractical for most residents and workers. In fact, before elevators made them more accessible, the top floors were the least desirable spaces in a building. Far from being the luxury retreats we think of today, top floor apartments were typically set aside for either low-rent tenants or the in-house janitor. With the advent of elevators, though, those higher floors got much more appealing and much more valuable, but they also got much higher. Advances in steel frame construction, and of course, elevators, allowed buildings to be built much taller than ever before. That basically meant that anyone who owned a building no longer needed to fight for new land to develop on, something that's always in short supply in cities. Instead, they could simply expand their existing buildings upwards, constructing new offices or hotel rooms or retail spaces where there used to be nothing but thin air. In that way, 
elevators literally shaped the cities we know today. Instead of sprawling horizontal cities, we ended up with densely clustered vertical ones. It wasn't a happy development for the car industry, but for elevator manufacturers and maintenance crews, it was a dream come true. Unfortunately, Elijah Otis didn't live long enough to see just how widely embraced and impactful his invention became. He passed away in 1861, just a few years after his first elevator was installed in New York City. However, his sons did carry on the family business, and along with others, they made improvements on the original design, including the switch to hydraulic power and eventually to electricity. All of that innovation helped secure the elevator's place as one of the most highly trafficked transport systems in the world. And that's no exaggeration either. According to the LA Times, the world's elevators now move the equivalent of Earth's population every 72 hours. Think about that. Every three days, over 7.5 billion people take a ride on an elevator. And a large portion of the elevators they're riding are operated by the Otis Elevator Company, which is still going strong today. The elevators in the Eiffel Tower are Otis Elevators, and so are the ones in the Empire State Building, the White House, the Vatican, the Kremlin, the list goes on and on. The company is now one of the two largest elevator manufacturers in the world. And that's why, if you step into an elevator today, there's a strong chance you'll still find the name Otis inscribed on its walls. I'm Gabe Lussier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider keeping up with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to send them my way by dropping a line to thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. 
Listen to Woke F Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.